Good morning, everybody. Welcome to week two. In this week, we're going to start at the beginning of forensic psychology, the age-old question that will never disappear. What can we do when it comes to a crime? Everyone's probably heard of it, everyone's seen it on the television, this idea that we have a magical insight, this idea that we can predict the motivations of what an offender will do, and in doing so we can help you maybe catch them or interview them or whatever it is. But what's the science of that? How do we do it accurately? How do we manage the psychologists who are in and around this area, giving their advice? How true is the media depiction? Well, there's only one thing to do. And that's to dive into it right now. So with that, let's get started. to a forensic psychology. Now in the introduction there, I gave you a quick little case, a kind of example there, a case of Juanita Caballero. Now this is a case that happened a couple days ago in New York, about a week ago now, right? And just a, just a, just a, a classic, or not a classic, an everyday, not even an everyday, just, a, just a, a New York murder. If you literally Google murders, it's the first one that comes up, right? But what an interesting case, right? It's the third, in, it's the third case in that building. All of the victims share a common identity, right? They're all elderly individuals, probably all living alone, strangled with the telephone wire, right? Now, what happens as a psychologist is you're asked about that case and immediately you start coming up with theories and maybe you came up with some. Why the telephone wire? Was it a crime of passion? Did they not do any preparation? Well, how could it be a crime of passion if there have been three over the last three years in the same building? Is it multiple offenders? Is it one offender? Do I think the person's old? Do I think they're male? Do I think they know them? These are questions that immediately come to mind. They're critical questions that an offending, that the, the investigative officer is going to want to know. And surely we as the psychologists who study the brain, the mind behavior, 
surely we can do something about this. Surely we can provide insight. There's got to be a bridge between these gut heuristics that we develop and the science that we can provide here. But that process, that question, it's a murky history. And it's a complicated process. And there's a few questions that in this week we're going to study, right? We're going to look at where does this idea come from, right? What's the origins of the, of the thought that a psychologist can do this thing? How do we know? How do we do it, right? There are many different ways that we can approach that question. You know, what can we learn about the offender? All right, so how do we, what's the best way to do it? When we do do it, how do we do it accurately, right? How do we communicate uncertainty? And how do we evaluate people? How do we evaluate the profiles, if you will? How do we evaluate the profilers? Because if you know anything about the world and a business world, right? If you're operating without accountability, if you're operating without ever knowing that you're right or wrong, how can you ever get better? How can we get better at this task if we don't check and assess when people are right and when people are wrong? And these are all of the questions that have, that have governed our field of study since the early 1980s through to today. And over the next couple of weeks, this week, Thursday, next week, the Thursday after, I'm going to walk you through the history of how this works, where we got from the historical idea of the conception of a psychological profiler through to what we'd call modern day behavioural investigative advice. I'm going to show you the missteps. I'm going to show you the different trends and I'm going to show you kind of how the field has come together to provide some structure around this and how the UK has kind of pioneered some of the interesting ways. And maybe we'll learn something, not just about psychology, not just about forensic psychology, but maybe we'll learn something about speaking, arguments, confidence and narratives that we can take with us as we move forward. But to, to start all this off, how could I do a lecture on profiling without giving the floor to some of my favourite depictions from our esteemed Hollywood? So have a little look, see what they have in common and ask yourself, just how real is this? I shoot Mr. Marlowe twice, severing jugulars and carotids with near-surgical precision. He will die watching me take what is his away from him. This is my design. shoot Mrs. Marlowe expertly through the neck. This is not a fatal wound. The bullet misses every artery. She's paralyzed before it leaves her body. Which doesn't mean she can't feel pain. Just means she can't do anything about it. This is my design. Ew, no, dear. Now, that was one of my favourite examples that I've seen in maybe the last year, right? So it's, it's, it's from a TV show, Hannibal, in which you have kind of two budding forensic psychologists. One is, is the, the esteemed and ever well-dressed Hannibal, who, who seems to live a, live a life of opulence and, and fine wine and fine dinners, coincidentally made from human flesh. And the other is Will Graham, this kind of profiler, if you will, who has this kind of 
ability to see inside the minds of criminals with, wait for it, this is my favourite part, his superpower is empathy. It is, it, is, it is legitimately described as just unbridled empathy that allows him to see inside the minds of these deviant individuals and he recreates their, their actions to flawless accuracy and then he stands there in the camera and goes, this, this is my design. Which is, in my opinion, a, a really, really weird catchphrase. But he, that's maybe an extreme version, right? And we can easily see kind of, um, we can easily see that there are softer versions of this, right? The one that we'll all know is we'll all know Criminal Minds, we'll all know The Mentalist, we'll all, all know the movie Silence of the Lambs, and the UK will know Cracker featuring Robbie Coltrane, you know, we'll all know these, these, these studies, or sorry, these shows where there is this character who has this uncanny ability to understand the, the criminals that they're charged with, with, with studying and intervening. And, we, and, and we, we, we see this manifest in many different ways, but the character's always the same, right? You know, they're, they're some kind of psychologically attuned individual with a tortured past. They're always leading, you know, everyone, everyone thinks it's yin and they come across and say it's yan. And then they have this amazing ability to not just spot the individual, but to then somehow be able to perfectly design the, the the, the environment that will allow them to reveal themselves or catch them, perfectly design the interview strategy. But it's this vision or this idea of the kind of the, 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 psych the psychologist as providing insight. And here's the really interesting thing about that. Psychology didn't come first here, right? So, so if we look at this concept that, that people have a, a skill, and that skill is that they are able to see into the minds or, or predict the minds or the characteristics, if you will, of, of people who are committing crimes. That, that skill, if you will, and we'll actually investigate the degree to which that is a, a, a measurable skill uh, on, on Thursday. But that skill, if you will, that didn't come from us. Right. This is the relationship between science and the world. Right. In many cases, science has an idea. Right. I'm, I'm trying to think of a decent science. Space. We'll go with space. Right. So, so, so space scientists who probably don't like being referred to as space scientists have an idea. Right. And that idea is that they are able to construct a rocket ship that can put a man on the moon, right? And, and, and when that man is on the moon, they can protect him and do all of this stuff, right? And maybe they don't have the idea first. Maybe the government says we're in a race with Russia and we want to stick a man on the moon. So can you quickly just whip us up a rocket? But, but in either way, the science existed first, right? This idea that we are accurate and good at predicting criminal characteristics didn't come from us. It wasn't like psychologists were tapping on the doors and being like, I don't know if the police have ever looked at any of my published literature, but I'm actually really good at detecting criminals. It came, it came the other way around. The idea was created in fiction and it then was passed, almost put upon us now of the assumption that we are able to do it. So if you were to look at the earliest kind of attempts to program, where this idea comes from of the psychologist as the the criminal, the, 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 the specialist when it comes to criminal behaviour, it comes from fiction, it comes from literature, right? So behavioural profiling historically has always been an art and it has been viewed as an art. It is viewed as something that is that is imbued upon the individual, right? Think about someone like Damien Hirst, right? Famous artist, Damien Hirst, or Vincent van Gogh, if you will, right? Their skill is an expression of themselves that they have self-generated and self-developed and they themselves hold inside, hold their own, right? It's almost viewed as profiling is that, like it's an innate born with ability, like a vision that someone has, that they're able to do something that other people aren't because of some kind of experience or training or, or innate God-given gift, right? And this is what the, the fictional depiction is, right? The arts of it, its roots are not in scientific, academic or applied criminological pursuit, 
many of the central tenets emerge within works of fictional literature, right? Literature's first criminal, pro criminal profiler. See Auguste Dupin, the hero of Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. I've made a rue, by the way. I went to New Orleans recently, made a rue. It is 85% butter and I think 15% salt or possibly sugar. But you, you stir it into a paste and then you, you make a meal and then you put more butter on top. It was unbelievable, right? So murders in the Rue Morgue. I don't know if that's relevant to New Orleans at all. Throws himself into the spirit of his opponent, identifies himself there within and sees the sole methods by which he may seduce the perpetrator. That was written in 1814, I think rewritten in 1982, according to the notes there. But how old is that concept that somebody is able to kind of extend outside of their own mind and and make immense assumptions about the extremities of a human behaviour and indeed the human who was most likely to have made them and do it in a way that is is accurate and refines and shapes, if you will, the kind of the profiling process. I mean, it's an immense, it's an immensely kind of, I guess, almost fictional idea, but that's where it came from, right? But what's so fascinating about that depiction is that when we often think about these kind of things, at least in the historical sense, and what I would say is in the grandiose sense, the Sherlock's, the Will Graham's, the the mentalists of the world, if you will. It is imbued as, it is viewed as this, this, this human trait rather than a, a skill or a knowledge base that's acquired. It's viewed as a very human trait, deeply personal, again, more like art. But that's the origin, if you will, right? That's where this thought, this idea comes from. That hang on a minute, if psychologists study people, surely they therefore understand criminals better than, than anybody else, because after all, they're studying the psychology of, of, of criminals and of people. And it may sound like a weird place to kind of start, but this is one of the most kind of undercutting, I think, features that defines the kind of the early days of forensic psychology, is that there was an assumption in the world that we were capable of doing something, and then we were charged with the process of doing it. And then afterwards, we kind of decided that we should probably assess if we're actually able to do it or not. Now, that, as you can imagine, is the reverse of what you'd like things to be, right? We come up with a concept that we think we can do. We evaluate if we are able to safely do it. And then we try it in the real world, right? Imagine this. Imagine you wanted to send a man to the moon. And you ask someone to build him a rocket. And then you never tested if the rocket worked outside of the Earth's atmosphere before you put the man in the moon. Or you put before you sent the sent the rocket ship off to space, and then after you've been sending rockets to space for twenty years, you ask yourself, do you know, what? we should probably, probably evaluate if these rockets actually do what we say, what what they're meant to be doing or not. There's exactly the same thing you see here, right? If you look at a graph, right, of the use of psychologists in crime, it exponentially increases after the 1970s, right? When did we start evaluating the accuracy and kind of contents of, of, of criminal profiles, if you will? As you'll see next week, we evaluated them in 2008. So an exponential increase in the use of psychologists and their, in, and their involvement in criminal cases uh, and specifically kind of serious cases such as murder, etc. And we really started to evaluate it kind of in the late, in the late 2000s. And it's just something as a, as a psychologist who studies both, both crime and then also kind of terrorism as well. It's just an expression of this fundamental tension between what people believe and want to believe exists and what science kind of is able to offer them. The biggest one, and like, so I'm going to in a moment tell you what profiling is as a, as a psychological construct. But one of the things we often deal with is the idea that there is a profile for this, right? This idea that there is a profile of a terrorist. And so ever since 9-11, we've been working on this area and everyone wants to know what's the profile of a terrorist, right? What's the profile of a, of a jihadist, right? Post 9-11, everyone wanted to know that. What's the profile of an extreme right wing terrorist, right? Everybody wants to know that now, right? The answer, and people don't like to hear it, is when you look at the psychology of it, there isn't really a profile. There's diversity, there's heterogeneity, there's disaggregation between what you're talking about, right? The analogy I always use is, well, how would you profile a doctor? 
right? I mean, you could you could maybe profile a doctor as, 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 you know, being intelligent enough to get themselves through medical school, but that doesn't get you very far. If you watch Scrubs, right, or any kind of medical TV show, the, the more interesting profiles exist between different types of doctors, right? So Turk being the kind of the, the, the cocky surgeon, right? That classic uh, pediatrician profile, you will, of being kind of soft and, and, you know, constantly like talking in a kid's voice. I would include my mother in that. She's a pediatrician as is also my father and also my sister. And weirdly, they have three completely different personalities, right? But, but there's this idea that we can profile and therefore there is a, a want for us to profile. And therefore we as scientists suddenly begin the question or chase the idea of, well, we should probably go and find this profile because everyone thinks there is one, right? So what I want you to get from that is that in the case of forensic psychology, a lot of the ideas about what we are able to do don't come from us saying we can do it. They come from people assuming we can do it and then us trying our very best to do it, which is the inverse of what you'd call the scientific process. And it's one of the things that we'll kind of look at in week three, the kind of the issues that that caused of kind of, um, I guess, an analogy you could use. I heard this recently about kind of the COVID response is kind of, you know, building the boat while you're rowing down the river. That's what profiling is, right? People are like, right, we're going to go to A to B. We're going to get in a boat. We haven't built the boat. Well, we're going to go anyway. OK, well, we better start building the boat then. Yes, but we're moving at the same time. Oh, well, well, well right. Well, now we're building a boat while we're moving. And let's just pray halfway down the river that the boat doesn't sink. Right. That's the kind of the that's the world that this looks like. Right. It's not this clean, perfect scientific process. So let me tell you very quickly about kind of what a what a definition of profiling is. And I just want to say this because it is con it is often misconstrued from a theoretical sense. Right. So. To give you just a base profile definition, I'm just going to go with Blau 1994, right? And the process is basically a method of helping to identify the perpetrator of a crime based on an analysis of the nature of the offence and the manner in, in which it was committed. The process attempts to determine aspects of a criminal's personality makeup from the criminal's choice of actions before, during and after the criminal act. The misconception or construction of the word profile is the idea that the profile can occur before the crime, right? And this, this is just generally where I see the, the common, what's the profile of a serial killer? What's the profile of a terrorist? What's the profile of a Wall Street fraud guy? Now, traditionally, profiling occurs after a crime has happened because you need the specifics of the crime in order to actually know what you're profiling. There's um, David Cantor kind of kind of developed it and then me and a guy called John Horgan kind of adapted it a little bit. But there's kind of a, a hierarchy of differentiation that you can kind of talk about different levels of profile. So what's the profile of a murderer? That's just a general question. So murderer versus non-murderer, I suppose. And then you've got, well, what's the, what's the profile, if you will, of a instrumental versus an expressive murderer, right? So, so one murderer is very emotional, one ver murderer is very planned, okay? Go down a level. What's the profile of someone who uh, murders uh, someone emotionally, but then hides the body and tries to cover it up versus someone who murders someone emotionally and doesn't take any precautions whatsoever, right? And then you can go down one, one step further. And what's the profile of someone who um, uh, uses, uh, uses a blunt instrument to commit the murder, murder versus someone who uses a kind of a slow and, and kind, of, kind of very interpersonal uh, uh, behaviour, right? You could technically profile at every single level of that, right? And in that sense, profile is basically a, a synonym for kind of what is the, I guess, I guess what is the kind of the, the, the average traits of an individual. But, but if you were to go to the origins of the concept, a profile is the process in which you have a, a crime in front of you and you are trying to understand or predict the characteristics of the offender based on the known and observable crime scene behaviours. So you could profile the case at the beginning of this lecture because there are known crime scene behaviours. The use of the telephone cable, the murder of the, late, the, the victim's age, any precautions that were taken, you know, all these things. You, you've got the crime in front of you and, that, and from that you can profile, right? But what's interesting about that is that there are many, many different ways 
in which you can approach that process. And that's the, the kind of the lesson I want to kind of communicate on for the, for the rest of this kind of class here is this idea that you can kind of um, approach that strategy in a few different ways. And how you approach it is going to dictate the kinds of, of outputs, if you will, from your profile. Right? So if you do it statistically, you're going to give a very different answer to if you do it from kind of a, a criminal investigative or an experience based approach. So I'm quickly just going to run through those three different strategies for you. OK, so the first strategy may be the one that you kind of are the most used to seeing. And especially if you see Mindhunter, you'll have seen the history of it. If you know any of the backstory with Douglas and Resler and kind of the, the psychologists who are associated with that. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to link to a, a really good BU virtual roundtable that occurred with the clinical psychologist who's at Boston University in the nursing school, um, who is actually portrayed in the Mindhunters uh, show. And you can kind of get a sense of that. But the first approach to kind of profiling, if you will, is what we call the kind of the criminal investigative. And what that involves is that involves the officer or, or, the, or, the, or the profiler, if you will, doing a kind of a blended approach of kind of their experience of previous cases and kind of different ideas and kind of um, heuristics that they've developed about kind of what crimes look like and who perpetrates them and why. Um, so as you can see, this is kind of a pioneered by the FBI, as I mentioned earlier, um, Douglas et al. 1986. And it's basically developed through brainstorming intuition and educated guesswork. Now, what that looks like is if you study expertise in any way, right? So my, my, my other area of expertise or, or my, one of my areas of study is decision making, right? And what we what we look at is, is how do people make expert decisions and what do experts do differently from novices? And one of the things that experts are able to do is they're able to identify patterns, right? So they're able to see patterns in front of them and they're able to use those patterns to, to identify previous cases or analogies or other things that are similar and they kind of bring all of that together. Right? Let me give you an example, right? So about like six months ago, uh, my wife yelled at me um, and basically said that I had flooded the house, uh, which is which is I've had. That's not the first time. But there we go. I come downstairs and the the, the ceiling is leaking. Right. There's now water all over the kitchen. Right. And about a day before I, I had tried to screw in a light fixture very near where this leak was. Right. And so I put two and two together being a novice. And thought, well, what I've obviously done is I've drilled a hole in a pipe. That pipe is flooded, and now I have, a, and now you know, my my kitchen is a my kitchen is is is, is ruined. Um, I then called uh, my 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 wife's uh, father-in-law, who's a, a, a contractor, and basically said, you know, I think I've burst a pipe. And he comes over and he looks and says, no, you haven't. And I said, yes, I have. I, I I installed the light. The water fell out all over the floor. Thus, this is what happened. He said, no, that's not that's not happened at all, because. I know for a fact that the pipe isn't close enough to the nail. You never could have done it. It's not coming out of a pipe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He saw the situation, right? And because he had dealt with ceilings or pipes for the last 10, 20, 30 years of his life, he immediately was able to diagnose what the problem would or wouldn't be using his experience, right? So basically he was able to say it's probably A or it's probably B, but it's definitely not C. Right. And all of you will do that. Right. If you think about something that you are an expert in, it could be a hobby. It could be a science. It could be naming characters on Keeping Up With The Kardashians. I don't really know. If you are if you look at that, you know that you will see what's going on differently to someone who doesn't to, to someone who has no experience. Right. And it's this power of expertise. And that's basically what the criminal investigative approach is. It's using memory, intuition, all the previous crimes that you've looked at to develop kind of guiding heuristics of what you think is going on in a case. Right. And one of the most one of the most um, like one of the first ever kind of guiding heuristics that was developed through the criminal investi investigative approach was basically that classic idea of instrumental and expressive. Right. So there are crimes that are expressive. They're led by passion. The offender knew the person. They were driven by emotion. It wasn't planned. And that's why they probably used a uh, they probably used a weapon that was in the vicinity. Right. So the person's going to be a close contact. He's not going to be very careful. There were no 
um, pre-crime uh, precautions used because it, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing, right? Ex expressive. The other one, I don't think all of them apply to that. Sometimes they're more instrumental. You know, they're murder for hire, they're murder for plan. Things are, are planned out. It's meant to look like an accident. They don't always know the person. There's no emotion involved. It's a, it's a fiscal gain, if you will, right? And people, what will happen is that these, these kind of expert police officers with all of these years of experience is they'll, they'll, they'll approach a crime and from intuition and expert knowledge and judgment, they'll say, no, do you know what? The traits here that I see, I often see with these kind of crimes and, and therefore these are the kind of perpetrators that we've dealt with in the past. And they'll use that to kind of guide their thinking. So what you'll often see is kind of when you, when you, when you look at the criminal investigative approach, is you'll often see this kind of theme-based outcome. So they'll often come with quite broad themes of behaviour and therefore themes of perpetrator. So what we've got behind us here actually is a kind of a, so it's Keppel and Walters and they classified uh, sexual murders by motivation, victim selection and level of planning. Now, what you'll see is that they've come up with this idea that there are kind of four different, if you will, types of offense, of offense, right? So you've got power reassurance, power assertive, anger retaliatory, and anger ex excitation, right? So I can generally break crimes into four different themes, right? And when I've done that, there are kind of broad tendencies that are associated with the perpetrator. So if I look at my power reassurance, you know, they're going to be in their mid-20s with a criminal history, socially isolated and unmarried. Okay, broad. Use of porn, well, that's very broad. Anger retaliatory, again, driven by anger. What's some of the traits going to be? Unsuccessful relationship history. Well, I mean, if you've ever been dumped, I think that qualifies as an unsuccessful relationship history. So, again, a bit broad, okay. Anger excitation, potential outcomes. Potentially married, okay, that's broad. Use of porn, that's broad. Potential drug use. Well, I'm not being funny, I think I had an excess dose of NyQuil last night and a melatonin, I kind of little melatonin chaser there, is that potential drug use? So one of the problems is that because it's an intuitive cognitive judgment, you get quite intuitive outcomes from it. And that's why you'll see the, the example that I played at the beginning of this, that kind of classic criminal minds example. They speak in, in absolutes based on a typology that they have that they have put together. And that's really good. I, I, I'm a big advocate for expert judgment, right? I'm a big advocate for it. But it leads to certain problems just sometimes in the idea that when you develop broad typologies, if you will, and broad types, you can kind of brush over the nuances, if you will, right? So let me give you an example. And this is one I always give, right? So I'm, I'm a professor. I, 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 I've taught for a long time at UMass Long. Right, so let's, let's imagine I'm profiling. And what do I want to profile? Well, I want to profile school attainment. Right? I want to profile who's going to do well in my class or not. Right? And let's say that I come up with a, you know, I, I've looked at students and attendance is always really important. But what's really important is um, how, uh, how often you raise your hand or where you sit in the classroom. Right? So I've got these theories now, my intuitive theories, that those students who raise their hand the most often get the best grade. And my theory can be that they are driven by a yearning interest to, to learn. They're inquisitive. You know, they, they're active in their learning. They're reading, they're listening, they're interpreting, they're engaged. And they've got these questions, right? And that's going to correlate with good performance, doing the readings and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I may be correct 80% of the time, but there are also a lot of people who don't raise their hands who do exceptionally well. Maybe they're introverts. Maybe they just don't learn very well in the class. Maybe they learn better independently by doing the readings on their own. All of those things are fine. The outcome is the same, but these individuals kind of don't quite fit my broad typology. And so when I speak in kind of thematic absolutes, you can brush over some of the nuance. And it's something that we're going to talk about kind of how we evaluate the words that are used in a profile. It's really important for that point. But that's one of the things that comes from the kind of the the criminal investigative approach is, is because it's about intuitive judgments and clustering. And clustering is really important because you can kind of move, you can kind of, you can kind of discount a lot of stuff 
kind of if you've made a general broad cluster, it's very good, but there are sometimes errors in that. And, and if, you, if any of you know the, the Daniel Kahneman work, right, the idea of thinking fast, thinking slow, you know, what you'll see in that is that very often, you know, a lot of the expert judgment can lead to heuristics, biases, and kind of just some of these little errors that creep in. You know, one of my favorite um, areas of study is the idea of analogical decision making, right? So you, you see a situation, you draw an analogy, right? This is a bit like when this happened, and you use that to infer what's going on. Unfortunately, analogical decision making has, has been at the root of many of some of, our, some of the greatest mistakes in history. You know, kind of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Obama, right, dealing with the kind of the Islamic State, he used a kind of a, a crude analogy of what Al-Qaeda used to be and tried to treat the Islamic State as if it was the next Al-Qaeda. And it was like something very, very different, which meant that it then emerged to become a much bigger problem. So sometimes analogies, if they're incorrect, can lead you to kind of certain errors. And that's just one of the issues that can come from, I guess, a, a intuitive criminal investigative approach. But still, the most important parts are it's driven by experience. It's often done by FBI agents, often with, you know, a psych background, as we see in kind of the, the modern day BIA, where they're blending their wealth of experience and knowledge with kind of some of the intuitive theories they have about human behavior. And they use that to develop these these broad uh, types, if you will, of kind of profile that they're dealing with. Often ask whether it's nature or nurture that creates a serial killer. Well, it's actually both and more. I like to say that genetics loads the gun, personality and psychology aim it, and your experiences pull the trigger. Your genetics give you the potentiality to be a killer, but your personality and psychology are the filter through which you experience, and they can shade how you come away from any event in your life. I'm Jim Clementi. I'm a retired FBI supervisory special agent and profiler in the behavioral analysis unit. As a profiler, my job was to hunt down child abductors, serial rapists, and serial killers. We help out where forensics fail. If we look at how the crime was committed, that leads us to why the crime was committed, and that leads us to who committed the crime. The FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit is part of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. And as such, we study all violent and sexual crimes across this country and much of it around the world so that we can then train law enforcement so that they can get the benefit of our research in our training. The original FBI profilers, Dick All, John Douglas, Roy Hazelwood, Robert Ressler, Pete Smerick, they gained this body of knowledge by actually going into prisons and interviewing convicted serial killers. They interviewed them in great detail about what they did and also how they grew up and how they felt during the entire time that they were killing people, developing this criminal expertise, and that they were getting away with these crimes. For example, from Ed Kemper, they learned that he had a very difficult relationship with his mother. So he started killing surrogates in place of her, and then he killed his mother. David Berkowitz showed how sexual frustration can be taken out on innocent people on the streets of New York. From Ted Bundy, they learned that he was a sexual sadist, that he got off on causing and witnessing the pain and suffering of others. But he did that many times by using his psychopathic charm to lure in victims, and he feigned injury so that it was the people who wanted to help him that he ended up killing. So now we have an amazing volume of institutional knowledge about these offenders, and it tells us how they killed and why they killed, and it helps us to hunt them down. Criminal profiling is basically reverse engineering a crime. We look at the victimology, the choice of the victims. We look at the crime scene. We look at the organization level, and then pre and post defense behavior. And together, all those things tell us the kind of person who committed the crime. 
Victimology is the study of the victim, their life, their desires, their education, their daily routine. Because an offender picks a particular victim at a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular manner, for a particular purpose. And all those choices leak out information about the offender, about their skills and abilities, about their desires, and they can lead us right back to the offender. The crime location can tell us a lot. Did the crime occur on a farm in the middle of Iowa where the only potential witnesses are a bunch of cows and pigs? Or did it happen in New York City's Times Square where at any given moment there may be 50 to 100,000 potential eyewitnesses? Pulling off a crime in either of those locations tells you a lot about the offender. At the crime scene, we look at the offender's behavior. How much time did they spend there? What was their interaction with the victims? And what was their criminal sophistication level? The choice of weapons that an offender uses at a crime scene reveals a tremendous amount of information about them. Did the offender use a gun and kill somebody from a distance? Or did they get up close and personal and use a knife? That's a different kind of person who typically is engaged in different kinds of profession than somebody who will not get up close and personal. Next, we look at the offender's organization level. The two types of offenders that we see are on a spectrum between organized and disorganized. The organized offender will plan it in advance, fantasize about committing the crime, and then bring all the implements necessary to commit the crime and then take them away with him after the crime whereas the disorganized offender is impulsive. They don't plan the crimes out in advance. They may have lowered inhibitions because of drug or alcohol use, and they basically pick up the implements along the way and may leave them behind, leaving a lot of forensic evidence for law enforcement to find. If an offender doesn't have a very high skill level in terms of getting access to victims, they'll pick victims who lead very high-risk lives, prostitutes and drug addicts, whereas a very sophisticated offender will be able to acquire victims in the privacy and security of their own homes. It takes a much different level of criminal sophistication to be able to accomplish those two different crimes. The next level of criminal behavioral analysis is looking at pre- and post-defense behavior. If they're organized offenders, they probably did pre-offense surveillance to check out the location, maybe even surveil potential victims and stalk them. Also, we find that offenders, after they commit a serious criminal offense, will have behavioral changes that people around them might see. For example, if an offender has committed an abduction and murder, they would likely leave the area, making up an excuse, an emergency, to get out of town and they wouldn't return until everything calmed down and they felt it was safe to come back. Building a profile is simply taking all of those five factors and looking at what information the offender leaks out by behaving in those particular ways. When I analyze a crime scene, I look at various types of evidence, some of which we have here. Pictures inside the house where the crime occurred, crime scene photographs, autopsy pictures, as well as an affidavit summarizing the facts of the case and the crime scene description. Typically, I'd like to ask a lot more questions and get much more data, but I think we have enough, at least now, to start a preliminary profile. So I'm looking at a case of a double homicide of a male and female. The male appears to be in his early 20s. He was shot about five times. He has an unknown relationship to the female victim who appears to have been pregnant and she was shot seven to eight times in her face and head and upper torso. It also appears that the male may have scrawled in Greece several letters. He's found on the floor of the back room by the back door. She's found in a room next to it, half hanging off the bed with her head on a couch that's pushed up right next to the bed. It appears that she was first shot while she was laying on her back on the bed and that she either rolled over to try to get away or was flipped over by someone and shot again where she died in place. My first impressions are that the male victim was killed first, that he was a practical kill to get him out of the way, whereas the female victim was shot multiple times in the chest and at least once in the face and another time in the head. She appears to be the main target of this attack. So if we start with victimology, 
We know that the first victim, the male, grew up in this town and had left town for several years and came back. He's got no known criminal history yet. In this house, $11,000 in cash was found, three and a half pounds of marijuana was found, and powdery substance that appeared to be drugs was also found. That tells me that they were engaged in a high-risk activity, drug trafficking. But the fact that the drugs and the money were left behind tells me there's a high probability that this was not a drug-related hit. I believe that if drug dealers were involved in this, they would have taken the drugs and they would have taken the cash. This tells me there's a level of immaturity in this offender. Somebody who didn't have the presence of mind to search for these things or didn't even think that they might be there. I would put the intelligence level of the offender at mid to low because they made a flimsy attempt at cleaning up after themselves. And that could also mean that their inhibitions were diminished by drugs or alcohol. Something that's particularly unusual in this crime scene is the letters that are scrawled on the floor, apparently by the male victim, with grease that was squirted onto the floor. The attempt, it appears, to spell out a name, J-F-F, and then under that, B-O-P-E, sort of a last dying declaration. This could indicate either a person or some kind of motive. As a criminal behavioral analyst, I want to determine whether this is an actual message that was left by the dying male or whether this is staging in order to misdirect investigators. So I'd like to know if he had grease on one or more of his hands or fingers and whether or not he was left-handed or right-handed and whether or not that was the hand that had the grease on it. The organization level of this crime is fairly low. Even though the offender brought the gun he used to commit the murders with him, he left forensic evidence behind. And that tells me he doesn't have a very high level of forensic or criminal sophistication. When we look at pre and post offense behavior, since it doesn't look like he's very criminally sophisticated, this could be one of the only times he committed a crime like this. And I believe that he may have gone into a panic afterwards. I would think that somewhere between where he committed these crimes and where he went, you would find the weapon in a dumpster, a body of water, or a place he thought it would be hidden. I would also expect somebody like that to make an excuse to either leave the area or leave town for a period of time till everything calms down. So in this case, I believe that how the victims were killed tells us a story. I believe he was a practical kill and she was the target of this double homicide. Also, the fact that she was pregnant may indicate that the why was jealousy and that there was another person, sort of a love triangle here and that the person responsible was the third person in this love triangle or a family member. In the DC sniper case, the entire Washington DC area was terrorized for 23 days. A number of random people were shot and killed or injured. It turns out this was a longer spree that had started in the state of Washington and spanned the entire country. So I became involved in the case because I was working in the behavioral analysis unit at the time and we consulted on the investigation. Immediately this case presented as if it were a spree killer. Six murders in the space of 27 hours. So we didn't think he was targeting a particular type of group. The victimology was completely random. Typically in spree cases, the offender is on the run and commits murder after murder after murder, but decompensates over that time the rush of adrenaline and the excitement and the fear of getting away, all those things can cause an offender to make more mistakes as time goes on. But in this case, that wasn't happening. The shootings themselves indicated that there was pre-attack surveillance. This offender planned and executed six murders within the space of 27 hours and was a ghost. No one even saw him. That told us right away that he had a certain level of calm, cool, and collectedness, that he was probably in his mid to late 40s and had police or military training. But more than that, he must have actually had experience on the streets as a police officer or on the battlefield. Because pulling the trigger on a paper target is one thing, but taking the life of an unknown individual is a whole nother matter. So when we started the profile, we based it only on statistics 
And statistically, snipers are in their 40s or 50s, white males, and they have a grudge against society or somebody in particular that they take out on their victims. Another thing about snipers is that they have a God complex. They want to take life from afar and above so they can feel omnipotent like God. And because of that, it's very important to appease them and not challenge them. Unfortunately, that's not what law enforcement was doing at the time. They called them a coward, and they said the streets are safe and the schools are safe. So the sniper shot a kid walking into school the next day. But they left a tarot card, the death card. And on that card, there was indications of duality. First of all, it said, call me God, which reinforced our opinion that the sniper had a God complex. And it went on to say, this is for you, Mr. Police. And that looks as though the writer is looking up to the police, calling them Mr. Police. It also has its origins in a number of reggae songs, so that could mean that the offender had a Caribbean influence. But then it said, do not release to the press. And press is an older word, something that older people use, which is consistent with the level of sophistication of planning and executing these crimes, but not consistent with looking up to the police. So for the first time, we had to consider whether this offender was calm, cool, and collected when he plans and executes his murders, but he decompensates when he's writing, or for the first time in US history, we have a sniper team one older in his mid-40s and one younger in his teens. But the fact is that we know that because snipers have a God complex, they don't work well together. So I theorized that the older one was actually controlling the younger one. And I went as far as saying that he may be controlling him through sexual victimization because that would give him complete control over the younger person. In fact, 10 years after they were caught and convicted, Malvo disclosed that Muhammad had been sexually victimizing him the whole time. So in the end, our profile was that of two snipers working together, both African-American, one in his mid-40s, having police or military training and experience, one in his teens. Once we released that profile, and because of other work that the FBI was doing parallel that reinforced our profile, Muhammad and Malvo were arrested within 24 hours. Developing the profile in the DC sniper case was groundbreaking because in the vast majority of previous sniper cases in the United States of America, they were committed by lone offenders who were white, male, who were in their 40s or 50s with a particular grudge. And this case blew that profile to pieces. As criminal behavioral analysts, we look at how the offender committed the crime and determine why they committed the crime. And that leads us to who committed the crime. In many of these cases, local law enforcement has absolutely no idea who committed the crime and no leads. But criminal behavioral analysis can generate leads as to the type of person who committed the crime. And in many cases across the country, criminal behavioral analysis has led to the identification, arrest, and conviction of the offenders. So the second approach to criminal profiling, now this one is a lot less common now. It, you probably, you've probably seen some version of it in the media, but it's a lot less common now. And basically it's what they call kind of like the, the clinical practical approach, right? So if you think about the last version, criminal investigative, and you're using, um, let's say your, 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 your investigative experience of the last, 50 or 60 murders to help you develop insights into the current murder that you're dealing with, right? So, so the, the case of kind of uh, the kind of case at the beginning of class, right? How many murders have you have you dealt with in New York City, and what have you kind of learned about them? What happened when three people are murdered in an apartment block in New York City, right? Is that normally the same person? What are the trends and traits that you kind of see using that as your guidance? The clinical practical approach kind of does the complete opposite, and it basically holds this idea that you have a, a, a kind of an N of one, right? It's a, it's a very phenomenological process where it's this deep dive into the single case that you are dealing with and kind of the consideration of all of the nuances of this case. So it's not done in, in reference to the past. It's not done with typologies or models or, or general heuristics or broad brushes. It's it's specifically focused on your interpretation of this single case. 
and um, kind of you can see from the kind of the the slides behind me that it kind of follows quite a quite an embedded process in which you're kind of working your way. So, you, you know, you get the case materials, you visit the crime scene, you infer your reconstruction. Thanks, Will Graham. This is my design. Right. You infer the motive and then you basically start to develop these psychological constructs and kind of bring it all through. But you're you're very much only focused on the case that you have in front of you. And basically, it's far more associated with kind of the the clinical practice, if you will, which is this deeply humanistic, uh, amazingly intense kind of one on one interpretation. So you don't really see it a lot, but it is a very kind of case specific model that was often developed more often by kind of a, a psychologist working as a kind of external consultant for a case than it was for the investigative officers. And that's because the psychologist has a lot less experience of the of that mass number of cases but they have very good kind of approaches to kind of understanding the individual so it's kind of viewed as this kind of like i guess it's almost this process of kind of crude psychoanalysis or psychological deep dive just without the person there and i've kind of seen them referred to it in different ways along that so that's the second approach it's kind of a clinical practical which while less kind of popular and widely utilized is still quite existent but it's this this interesting idea of your sole interpretation of the case in front of you now the next version is almost the complete opposite of that and what you have there is basically the statistical approach now the statistical approach we would probably refer to as kind of maybe at best the modern approach um in that obviously as there's been a mass move towards data collection and statistics, we're far more able to do the statistical approach. But when it comes to kind of the, the modern day development of a, of a kind of a profile, if you will, or kind of investigative advice, we rely much more heavily on, on the wide scale assessment of previous crimes. Now, what's interesting about the statistical approach is that the statistical approach almost involves no expert qualitative or subjective judgments right so it, it it's purely a mathematical exercise so so let me give you an example of that right so imagine we're dealing with that case at the start and i i imagine that most of you either went with a kind of a clinical approach or maybe a kind of a, a criminal investigative right based on heuristics and biases and and some of your gut instincts about what the case was here's what the statistical case would do so we've got our victim, right? Uh, I, I can't remember the age, I think 70 or, 70 or so years old, uh, murdered in her apartment with, a, with the telephone call, okay? In a building in which there were uh, three other murders there with similar methods in the last, um, in the last uh, five or so years, right? So what would a statistical approach do? So what the statistical approach would do is they would go and get their crime database, right? Murder database, right? And it could be New York-based, it could be US-based, it could be all of the murders ever in, in the world or Western based, whatever it is, right? And they would look at the percentage tendencies of behaviours. And because those cases are solved, the association with offender characteristics, right? So let's start with age, right? The victim was 70 or, let's say, 70, 70 or 79 years old, somewhere in the 70s, right? On average, when the offender is over 70, what percentage of uh, sorry, when the victim is over 70, what percentage of offenders were over 50, right? Or what percentage of offenders were under 50? And what you may get is you may get a kind of a, the, the statistics, if you will, will kick out the output that will say in 63% in, in of cases where the, offend, where the victim was over 70, the offender was under 50, okay? That's a that's a pure mathematical output there. Fantastic. Okay. What about when there are three murders in a building within five years, right? In close geographical proximity. Okay. Put that into the database. What's the outcome? In 87% of cases where three murders occurred in the same building across a five-year span, the same offender was responsible for all three murders. Okay? And you can go like that through all of the kind of um, the different outputs. You can even put them together, right? So in cases where the same murderer was responsible for all three murders in a geographical space within a five-year time span, 
and the offender was over the age of 70, what percentage of, sorry, victim, what percentage of offenders were over the age of 50, right? And the answer may be 86% or, or whatever it is, right? So you're, you're engaging in a purely mathematical analysis of the factors of your case based on all of the data that you have before you about similar cases, which allows you to understand trends and tendencies that may manifest in your crime based on how they've manifested in the crimes before them. So this one is the complete opposite of kind of the clinical approach because there's no psychological inference. There's no real psychological interpretation. It's, it's percentages and, and ball games. The difference is if you wanted to have kind of a, I guess, I guess a relevant kind of example of what this would look like. One of the things I'd say to you is kind of, well, hang on, let's look at the way that we analyze a sports game. Okay, so halftime show, right? Lakers Celtics, if you will. Huge Lakers guy, right? Charles Barkley's there. And I don't know anyone else on the panel, but there we go, right? And let's say they're looking at, uh, let's say they're looking at LeBron, right? And they're going to say, okay, so, so LeBron at the moment is shooting 73% from three, right? Is that, is that good? I feel like that's very good. It's like a Steph Curry number, fuck it. Right, LeBron is shooting 70% from three. Right, that's a that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a, a number. When LeBron is shooting seventy percent from three, right, the Lakers win ninety three percent of the time because LeBron James is an immense ball hog and doesn't pass the goddamn thing. Well, he didn't anymore. He does now because AD's there. But anyway, right. So we can have this base numerical assessment that says, look, when this behavior is occurring, most of the time he wins. Right, and that's this statistical based profiling, if you will, of trying to calculate the score of a game. Right. Let's look at this Sunday coming up. Percentage-wise, Brady wins most of the Super Bowls that he wins. Okay, well, that's one percentage, but we could then calculate in Mahomes also. Right? All these kind of things. You can look at it numbers-based, right? That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it would be to look at this kind of human element, right? So Charles Barkley may sit there and go, you know, uh, you know, LeBron's shooting well from three, but to be honest, I just... I don't think he's going to carry the team over the edge this time. The Celtics' D is too tight. He's going to get frustrated. I think he's going to get more errant with his ball handling. He's going to take more outrageous shots because people aren't getting uh, aren't getting free or whatever the hell it might be. Charles doesn't have stats to back him up, right? He's not using statistics to back up his judgment. Charles Barkley's just using his experience as a as an All Star NBA player, an All Star analyst to understand kind of how he thinks the game is going to go, right? Now, here's the point that I, I think is important to make when it comes to the, this profiling idea, right? So let's just, let's just take this message home and then, and then give us a, a kind of a, a question going forward, right? So, so the idea that, that we can infer the characteristics of an offender based on what we know about the crime scene right and the crime scene tells us nothing about an offender we have to infer that from what they've done right that's the no knowns if you will right that is this kind of kind of uh, fictional based concept that was the that was in the minds of writers rather than in the minds of psychologists and they created these these vivid, flamboyant, believable characters that created in society the conscious idea that it's something that can be done, right? And lo and behold, it's something that we're doing. Now, there are different ways that you can go about that. And it's driven by kind of who is doing the profiling at the time and what you have available. Experienced investigators, we find, kind of create themes and typologies and gut feelings based on all of the, all of the, all of the kind of the, the crimes that they've seen in the past, and they use that experience as a, as a positive kind of weapon to help them make decisions and see patterns and create associations. There's also the kind of the truly psychological model, which is this deep dive, if you will, almost therapeutic, this deep dive into this one case that you've been given to try and understand everything about them. You don't make broad tendencies based on, on single behaviours or intuition. You, you really dig into every single element and you try and reconstruct kind of this picture of what was going on in this one case, right? And then the third version is kind of almost a, a psychological, And it's 
statistics-based, right? And it's using percentages from data that we've collected and all the data in the world to try and understand what the likely outcomes are based on prior examples and prior cases. And obviously an issue with that is that doesn't work very well if the case has never been encountered before, that's fair. And also, you know, I could tell you something's 99%, but how do you know if it's the 1% or the 99? Right, a basketball analogy. How many times would you predict LeBron James comes back from a 3-1 deficit against the, uh, against the Golden State Warriors? Right? How many times would Tom Brady come back from 24-3 at halftime to win a Super Bowl? Right? Exceptions to the rules exist. And that's kind of the stats-based issue. But one of the things about the analogy I just drew up kind of dawned on me, and I think it's a, it kind of brings us to the next lecture quite nicely. Think about that sports analogy. Right. Think about sports. Think about anything right, where people predict the future based on what they have. They can use experience. They can use statistics. They can use whatever method they want. But people live in a world of making predictions. Turn on goddamn CNN. Turn on the news and listen to, the, listen to all of the predictions about the world. We have this problem that we never look at how accurate or how right people are. And actually, there's a really good project called... Um, so it's a great minds project, or it's the, it's the, it's this, this, this prediction project where, uh, where Philip Tetlock analysed how good experts are, pundits, experts are at making predictions. And he found that not only are they worse than chance, but the more experienced they are, the worse they got and the more confident they got. And it's this really interesting thing that people predict all of the time and they make assertions all of the time. The problem is that we never really check them on it and we never really assess it. How many times has Charles Barkley been wrong at halftime? How many times have, has Stephen A. Smith or Max, is it Max Keller? Whatever. Max Kellerman? Sure. How many times have they been wrong about Tom Brady? Max Kellerman said, I think, 2013 Tom Brady was over the cliff. Well... That take didn't age very well, did it? People said LeBron would never win with the Lakers. That take didn't end very well, did it, right? Punditry is wrong, right? It's always, it's always inaccurate. Not always, it's most of the time inaccurate, right? Now, I've just presented to you these three different types of criminal profiling, right? We can, we can do whichever one we want. But the million-dollar question is still, how often are they right? And how often do we check that? Which one is more correct than the other and, and, and why? And these are the questions that psychologists didn't come to start asking until the mid-2000s, right? So 1980s, even earlier, we started this process of trying to help. We took different routes, right? We had the, Kessler, we had the Douglas and Kessler doing their thing. We had the, 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 the consultant doing his thing. We had the statistician doing his thing and, and trying our very best. But it wasn't until the mid-2000s that we kind of started to ask, well, hang on a minute, just how, how well are we predicting these ball games? Because unlike a ball game, unless you're a gambler, right, unlike a ball game, no one dies, no one loses if, 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 if our prediction of Brady isn't right. No one loses if LeBron doesn't make the clutch three and they lose the game. It's not the same in forensic psychology. It's not the same with a murderer on the line. Because as I'm going to show you next week, if a profiler makes a bunch of wrong predictions and leads everyone down here, well, what happens over here? Uh, maybe the real criminal gets to keep doing what they're doing unimpu uh, uh, unin uninterfered for a while. And that's why this idea of assessing accuracy is really critical. So I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, this, this, this first lecture. Right? I hope you, you, you've taken home the main points. Right? The, the psychologists didn't come up with this idea. It was, it was put upon us by society and we rose to the challenge. We've approached it in different ways at different times based on kind of who's been trying to do it. And each one of these has kind of been a nice organic emergence of kind of an idea that we can approach this problem with. But now that we've got this in the real world, now the genie's out of the bottle, I've got the bigger question. Are we doing it well? How do we know? And how do we do it the best we can? And that's what we're going to get to in Thursday's lecture. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the media. I hope you're enjoying the YouTube. Enjoy the readings. And I will see you on Thursday on Top Hat. I'm excited to take this to the next level. Have a great day. Losing my mind, oh, I, I